0: You are listening to an American Theatre Podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheater.org Hi, this is Deep Trance, Senior Editor at American Theatre Magazine.
1: I'm Jose Saliz, a freelance theatre critic.
0: I feel like one of these days you should introduce yourself as drama desk nominator slash voter. No. Because you are a tastemaker. No, but that's not like, you, relevant. You make people's taste. Do I, though? Me, personally? Yes. Yes. I think you do. I think you do. You tell well, people what they should see and what should get awards. That's very important. ha. <laughs> Anyway, we are your token theater friends, people who love theater so much that we'll even take a complete stranger to the theater because we get two tickets to all the shows and so you got to give it to somebody. So why not give it to a stranger who can't afford to go to the theater? Mm
1: -hmm. Or who doesn't know they're welcome at the theater.
0: So if you ever want to be our plus ones, please check the Twitter. Like follow each of us on Twitter individually. The twitter yeah like my grandma i i am you know compared to the teenagers like you know i have a 16 year old nephew and he makes me feel old because he has a youtube account and when i'm like why do you do that he's like all the kids have them now it's so creepy and today we're reviewing some shows we're talking to a guest and at the end of the show we're talking about michael jackson fun times not anymore So first, Jose, what are we talking about?
1: This week, we saw three shows, and we're going to start with Daddy by Jeremy O. Harris. Then we're going to talk about Anything That Gives Up Light, which is a... Devised? Yes. Show. And we are going to finish with Recent Alien Abductions by Jorge Ignacio Cortinas.
0: Anyway, and after that, we have an interview with Ali E. and then we'll come back and talk about the Michael Jackson documentary and how it relates to theater. So first off, let us talk about Daddy by Jeremy O'Harris, which is sold out until the end of its run, so you can't probably can't get in, but I think you all should really know about the show and this playwright. So go, Jose.
1: When I was 22 years old, I was in college, and I was living in Costa Rica. I met uh, an older Italian-American gentleman. I mean, he was from Italy. He worked in fashion. And he went to Costa Rica for a holiday. And we met and we immediately clicked. And he fetishized me, I think, in the way that a lot of white men, you know, fetishize people of color, right? Especially, you know, like... Just think about me back then. I had no beard. I was like 130 pounds. I was like (gasps) a twink. What made this um, short relationship different than any other that I had or that I've had since is that this man was so invested in my brain. It wasn't only about my body. Mm -hmm. He kept telling me that he thought I was too good to be in Latin America, that I was too smart. Mm Mm-hmm that I was, you know, that I had a potential that needed to go places, right? So watching Jeremy O. Harris's Daddy, which is essentially about that, about the relationship between an older, white, very successful white gentleman who's an art collector played by Alan Cumming and the young African-American artist he takes under his wing and under his sheets <laughs> uh, was very you know I would bet I don't even know what to bet but I would bet that most uh, queer men of color at some point probably have had a relationship like this
0: with a daddy with a daddy
1: yes and mm-hmm. I don't like that word because <laughs> that's what I call my father So it's, it's just like gross to me And the play essentially shows us how the relationship starts, and then it asks, where could a relationship like this go? There's the class and racial differences. And there's also, I mean, I don't want to say this because it's too cliche and too easy, but there's so many daddy issues. Because there's Franklin's mom who shows up, Franklin's dad who is missing, Franklin's unique type of art making is creating this little puppets little dolls yes that look like him and like the people yes. in his life so you know it's daddy issues galore and there's
0: a pool did i miss anything oh and all the sex yes well i mean that was kind of like implied i guess it's not even implied it's in your face like literally <laughs> like they have sex in the pool and the pool water splashes onto the first row of the audience
1: Which is so cool. (laughs) It is very cool. And I'm so excited. But, you know, like after I saw the show, I kept thinking about so many other uh, gay canon plays like Angels in America and The Boys in the Band and Torch Song. And they are all so freaking white. I mean, like the only character of color in those plays is Belize in Angels in America, who's basically Mm -hmm. a magical Negro, right? He's just there to service. Yeah. Yeah. and to help the white people find
0: he gives them the speeches yeah. with the
1: lessons but we don't know anything about him Mm-mm. so i am so grateful for jeremy existing and you know it after after i left the show i was so excited that i'm not kidding i felt the thrill that i felt after coming out when i was mm. a when i was a very young adult it's kind of like so many different roads that could take you to what you're seeing on stage. Cause like in the relationship between Andre and Franklin, there's so much, uh, you know, Franklin sees his potential Mm -hmm. and he sees himself as in the future, someone like Alan Cummings character.
0: I think for the first time too, for that character.
1: Yes. And, and that's, you know, that's, What's so wonderful about this like when i met this like italian guy i had never thought that i could you know make it anywhere so to speak like i was very Mm -hmm. i've always been like ambitious but he was like i remember he brought like a bunch of timeout magazines with him from new york and he kept telling me like you belong in one of these magazines Mm -hmm. Like, you don't belong only, like, in some, like, tiny blog or, like, an obscure Costa Rican publication. He was like, you belong here. And that thing where you can aspire to be someone who, you know, more often than not, like, a lot of daddies happen to be white um, older men. So for a person of color to think that they could one day be as powerful as a queer white man is just mind-blowing. And 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 the the mood and the themes of the show are like like an Almodovar movie where everything is like you know like it's dialed to like six hundred percent. And didn't it feel to you like binging like a really really saucy like good soap opera? Yeah,
0: yeah. No, and it's interesting. Like the um, the subhead for the play is a melodrama, and so I think if you're going into it expecting like completely like a completely naturalistic play or you're, you're going to be disappointed and I think that's a genius of it because yes it's set in this domestic space but at the same time like you have you know this this gospel church uh, this gospel choir which is kind of like a greek choir in franklin's mind and you have like all these archetypes on uh, like all these all these heightened emotions and all these and all this beautiful language that normal people don't actually speak in and what i find interesting though about calling it a melodrama is that you know melodramas usually have a lesson that you learn or like the character learns or you know the character is being like lured by some temptress out of out of their house and it's up to you know their mom to like pull them back in and I feel like where the play ends is it's not resolved. Like I don't really know how Franklin saves if Franklin does save himself.
2: I don't
1: know, you know either, but but I don't I don't I don't I don't know if melodramas necessarily have a lesson. I think that's more of like a morality play kind of thing. It's like I grew up loving telenovelas and I didn't learn shit about a telenovela <laughs> other than if you're beautiful blonde and you happen to be working as a maid. You're okay. gonna marry. Yeah,
0: yeah, but but you're triumphant in the end. Oh yeah. And there's no triumph here. It's more. It's more like a. Oh crap! This is the actual issue that we're talking about, and end of play.
1: But what could be more triumphant for a millennial than that? Than figuring out, oh shit, this is what I should be working on.
0: And uh, and then all and all, all of like the luxury products and the daddy with the pool is. Kind of, like, blurring what it is that you're supposed to be working on. Yeah, I mean, like, what I I love Mm. so much about... That's a good point, actually. And, I mean, we haven't even touched upon
1: the fact that there's also, like, another level of daddy, which is Andre's own search for a god of sorts. He doesn't know where to pour all of this devotion and even though he ne- never necessarily talks about anything spiritual in any way, he's such an empty character that he feels like he needs to pour all of himself into Franklin. And, I mean, when mm. when Franklin's mom, uh, Zora, who's so wonderfully played by Charlene Woodard.
0: Oh, she's so good. Her
1: costumes.
0: Uh, <laughs> and how her, co- her gorgeous costumes were in the pool
1: yeah and I was saying that you know like even when we get like the uh, what looks what seems to be like she'll be <coughs> she seems to be bless you mm-hmm. she seems she's going to be like you know the typical like mom that we see in like a drama who shows up to just like curse at her son
0: mm-hmm. and just like With the dramatic music yeah,
1: <laughs> and teach him lessons but she's also lost like every character in this play is so lost and they're all looking for for a daddy basically or a mommy or i don't know
0: or like some kind of i think higher purpose because i because for franklin's mom it's god and religion Mm -hmm. and like that's you know that would be like her daddy or like who she turns to for like a sense or source of wisdom and for andre it's probably like the art world and beauty and you know and for franklin it's andre I think it's, like, the source of any really good drama, like, characters searching for, like, a higher purpose or, like, someone who who will just tell them what all this means. And then they realize none of it means anything.
1: I know. <laughs> and the play is so freaking good that it could have just gone on forever and ever and ever yeah. and ever.
0: It was three hours. It did not feel like three hours. I mean, the, I, I feel like there's some flaws in it on my part. But I'm just so excited that there's a writer who's willing to just be ambitious with their work and willing to write like a play with a pool in it and 10 actors. Like, that doesn't happen very often these days. And so I just want more people working with big ideas and being able to think big and executing them. Like, I want giant dolls, I don't want just the tiny dolls you can hold in your hand. I want the ones you that, that that you can prop against a wall and they're bigger than you.
1: I agree. I want more plays like this. Yeah, we didn't even talk about everything that we could I talk about. I know
0: we got to talk about the the design and the costumes. How everyone's wet and I don't even know how they're not all like dying of pneumonia or some shit. Like I don't even know.
1: And also like even like the supporting characters like Franklin's mm-hmm. best friends played by uh Tommy Dorfman and uh mm-hmm. Kim who are just so freaking wonderful cuz you know like they each character could warrant their own play like i wanted yeah. to hear more about Max and Bellamy but anyway let's move on yes yes love you daddy
0: <laughs> Jose's heart now belongs to daddy mm-hmm. uh daddy runs until march 31st everything is sold out but tickets are usually forty to hundred and thirty five dollars and there is thirty dollar rush tickets available an hour an an hour before curtain. So good luck if you're trying to see daddy and if you can't see daddy, I hope this discussion was fun and you should maybe put up daddy in your own town.
1: You just love saying daddy. Yes I do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I also call my dad daddy, and so this whole thing is just very warm. <laughs> <laughs> this is so wrong. Our next show is Anything That Gives Off Light, which is a collaboration between The Team, a New York based theater company, and the National Theater of Scotland. It's currently running at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. The show is about three people. Two Scots and one American, who meet at a bar and who go on a road trip and trade stories about their complicated relationships with their families and also with their with their countries. There's a lot of big ideas here in ninety minutes. It talks it talks about the values of the older generation dying off. It talks about capitalism and how it screws over poor people and just and paves over everything and it also talks about national identity and how during these tumultuous times it can seem like your feelings about your own country is in question and so what do you do with all those feelings you apparently get drunk in a bar in Scotland
1: as you should
0: yeah as you should I don't know (laughs) It was fine. It was fine. I did not, I knew it wanted me to feel something. I just did not feel it. I understood everyone's, what the conflict was, but I didn't quite understand where the conflicts, like where, who they were before they had the conflicts. Like there was one character who's like a Scottish expatriate living in, not, I'm sorry. Um, he, he, he's Scottish, but he feels very ambivalent about being Scottish. And so he moved to London, and, and then he's looked down upon by his childhood friend, who is very, very pro-Scottish. And and so there's that conflict. But I wanted to know more about why the character, played by... What is his name? Uh, played by Reuben Joseph why he didn't feel like he could be he could truly be scottish why why he didn't want to be scottish or i wanted to know why the american who played by jessica Almasi, why she want why she was running away from her family
1: mm, well i think that uh, the obvious reason for me why he had a problem being scottish was because he was jamaican scottish he was have you mentioned yet that, that he's that he, a person something that color? he's
0: black yeah the thing is, they only say that once. They only mention that once in the play. And so I don't know if it was something that you, we had to infer or if it was, like, a a racially blind casting situation.
1: Mm, I mean, I we could see him, though. And just the fact that we could see that he had a different skin color was all the information I needed to know why he would want to leave Scotland, to be honest. Because he's in London when we meet him. And mm-hmm. London is a much more diverse uh you know it's one of the most diverse cities in the world so it made mm-hmm. that made sense to me and he keeps talking about his legacy and how his grandma built a home and built a house in a place where we probably you know where they probably weren't wanted i know they don't go into that specifically no they the don't show. They
0: and i wanted them to
1: yeah i agree i just i mean i just got all of that just i mean I guess, like as a really? person of color, yeah, as a person of color, like I'm used to just like imagining more than what we're given with the characters.
0: That's great. I don't think, feel like you should. I don't think you should have to, though. That's a problem.
1: No, I know, but I mean, I still found him to be the most compelling character. Oh, he was, yeah. So, like you know, and it's also that thing where I kept wondering. I forgot the name of the uh, who's the the female actor who plays the. The American.
0: Uh, the character's name is Red. The actor is Jessica Jessica Elmasi.
1: Right. With with her friends is like I got that sense where again like going back to having not grown up in America, uh, thinking about how every time Americans go to a new place, even if it's like some some place that's you know like super like American friendly like England, mm-hmm. they all they do is talk about themselves.
0: Yeah, and talk it's about, true. Yeah,
1: and talk about how much they love. Um their country, and just pretend that they're like you know like Murgo right, mm-hmm. so with this character with red and the other dude just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking all the time, it was like they left no no room for uh you know the 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 black character to to speak, so i I don't know, I thought that that said a lot without actually saying it like specifically.
0: See, I thought they wanted us to find Ian the the white the the white Scottish character played by Martin Donaghy. I thought they wanted to find I, I thought they wanted us to find Ian what Ian and Red had to say compelling and I didn't. I mean what did help was the music. I think the uh, the Bensons, which is uh, this husband and wife band who's done a lot of stuff off Broadway. The Bensons c- composed like original music for this and I thought the music was gorgeous. And so hummable had nothing to do with the story. It was more—it was more of like a jukebox musical situation where it's always tangentially related. But if you took the music out of the of this play, it would have been a lot more dull for me. So the music added, added a lot of necessary color. But I actually didn't. I actually found like what they were arguing about and what they and what they were struggling with a little bit unclear. I mean, a- and, so, and so 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 unclear that I ended up not being as engaged as I wanted to be.
1: Mm, that's so fascinating because I found that lack of clarity. In fact, what was the most compelling thing in the show for me? Like, obviously, I I really loved the music. Like, I kept thinking if this show got a because it's you know it's it's set on a stage and it's like very like. Um, concerty you know mm-hmm. it's a, there's no mm-hmm. sets there's no costume changes or anything it's just like people and mics talking
0: yeah and did you wish that there was i i kind of wish there was especially when they started role-playing
1: yeah because i i was thinking like if this was like a production you know, like a traditional production i understand that they're touring it and that's why it's easier to just like mount it like in bars and like mm-hmm. concert halls and all of that but if this was like a full production i think this would easily be just as big as once because the music's there. The music's mm-hmm. great. I actually did like the characters a lot. Even the American women who was like very, um who represented the worst of like white. uh Appalachia. Yeah. And also like white feminism where she's mm-hmm. like always talking about how she's first. And she, you know, she thinks she, her problems are the only problems that yeah. matter.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, what was really problematic for me was like, she talks about how, you know, Americans are the underdog. And the other, and one of the other characters, I don't remember who, he said, how can you be the underdog? You are the most powerful. You are a white person living in the most powerful country in the world. And then at the end of the play, like she repeats that Americans will always be the underdog. And I'm thinking, and I don't really think like she developed throughout this entire process.
1: Well, I mean, but it's, again, like, if you're expecting the characters to learn a lesson, this is not the show for you. Like, (laughs) if if anything, the show just reinforces that, you know, exposing in this instance, like, a white American woman to a different part of the world, she'll still just be thinking, Mm America. And, I mean, I've, yeah, I just found that. It made me almost wonder if this was like based on like real life people and if it was like a documentary style mm-hmm. uh, play that we were seeing well,
0: but, but I, what what did you think was what it was trying to say but it was trying to just
1: say that how selfish we are how we can be exposed to different people from different cultures with different mm-hmm. skin colors with different histories and at the end of the day we are always going to find it impossible to look past like our noses like they go through so much on this road trip. And I guess that all the Hollywood movies, I mean, freaking green book that just won the Oscar is a road trip movie where Mm -hmm. the white guy fixes racism and teaches the black guy how to be black. And, but that's what Hollywood and American storytelling has made us used to. So I appreciate it. Not having that, not having that lesson. In fact, when the show ends and the characters one by one left the stage, and there's only one person, there's not there's not even music playing yet. Mm-hmm. There's only one of the characters on stage who keeps talking. Um and it is correct me if I'm wrong, because I was also having a beer, uh, but it's the the black character who's left at the end, right? On stage.
0: Uh yes, he has one song by himself, and then at the very end though, it's Ian, the white Scottish, oh, the who candle. has who has the last word. Yeah,
1: with the kind of – well, anyway, the last person who remains makes another point about the title of the show also when it's just – it's so freaking hopeless. And I guess it's a good – it's good that they're serving alcohol at Joe's Pub because this – you know, the – what you're left with when the show's over, it's just freaking desolation.
0: Yeah, but I guess the moral is try to find some light where you can find it. Basically.
1: Buy some candles.
0: Buy some candles, buy some booze, buy a lot of whiskey.
1: Yeah, well, if there was a moral, which I don't think this show has, I think the moral would be keep the light shining.
0: Somehow. Yeah,
1: like keep it shining, like keep it going.
0: Yeah, even if everything seems hopeless, which I guess, I guess, I don't know. I think for me, it's... If I don't enjoy the characters, you're done. It, yeah. Sorry characters. She Sorry characters. It's not in it. yeah, it's not even like they need to be relatable or likable. I just need to find something about them compelling. Mm.
1: That's
0: fair. It is what it is. I'm glad you liked it, though.
1: Oh, I had a great time.
0: Okay, good. Well, if you get to see it, let us know what you think. Anything that gives off light plays until March 31st, and tickets are $35. Though, be warned, Joe's Pub does have a $12 food or beverage minimum.
1: But they also have the best fries in the city.
0: Uh, (laughs) no comment on joe's pub fries aside from shoestring fries are the devil don't you love the mayo the mayo is great i don't like i don't like shoestring fries i don't like skinny fries i like nice fat french fries (laughs) okay the last show
1: i have always had this idea that you know how they usually say that when you die you see your whole life just like flash mm-hmm. before your eyes mm-hmm. and i've always thought that when i die which i hope is many 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 years in the future that the real that i'm going to get as my life flashes before my eyes is going to be comprised of scenes from movies and television shows and musicals and plays that i love because whether- starring you no no <laughs> starring like the people who were in them like i i can already see you know like there's probably going to be like a bunch of Kelly o'hara there's certainly going to be like a bunch of vivian lee in it and there's i don't even know there's going to be madonna there's going to be kylie anyway that's not the point the point is the point i'm trying to make is that we can't help the way in which you know storytelling like visual storytelling seeps into our brains like have you ever had a dream where you're like in a movie for instance or you are dreaming oh, yeah, about like, of course yeah. always yeah so just taking that idea uh, as a starting point, Jorge Ignacio Cortinas sets up something that's completely, you know, like uh, unlike anything I've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. When recent Alien Abductions opens, we encounter the world's biggest X-Files fan, <laughs> a young man named Alvaro, who's Puerto Rican. And he spends the first part of the show, like almost half an hour, going back and telling us about his favorite uh, episode in the X-Files, which happened to be um, in Puerto Rico. And he has this strange uh, idea that this episode has somehow changed after he first saw it when he was a a little boy, like a teenager. Mm -hmm. And then the next time he saw it, it was a completely different thing. So he spends endless hours trying to get in touch with the people at Fox to figure out what's going on. And this is what I was talking about earlier because sometimes you're watching a movie or watching a television show that you think you know and sometimes you go like, you feel like deja vu, like you're a part of it and you're like, wait, did I live this or is this the movie or is this the television show that I'm watching? Anyway, we never find out because then Alvaro completely disappears. We learn that he has passed away in New York and then we go to see how one of his friends from New York is in Puerto Rico trying to have Alvaro's family approve a document that's going to let them publish all his works, including this, and this is the plot twist, this X-Files thing that we saw at the beginning, which happened to be a one-man play about the show. Uh, From there we get, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but then we learn the reasons why Alvaro pretty much was forced to leave Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And we meet his family, his brother Nestor, and his mom, played by the great Mia.
0: Katigpa! Who's such a goddess. Oh, she's so good.
1: And we meet Alvaro's uh, sister-in-law and one of his neighbors. And what Jorge Ignacio Cortinas does is that he builds a world in such a way that we understand, like, every character. And he explores trauma, he explores violence, and child abuse and also he's so in love with television and film references that i don't even know this place so weird by the end it turns into like this 2001 space odyssey meets like blue velvet meets like twin peaks
0: um, no no more like a vision of the body snatchers
1: <laughs> oh yeah it's because they're moving like all like, weird, mm-hmm. like
0: robots and and they're in their alien but and not humans they're aliens Oh man, there's this play is there's a lot. It's very short. Yeah, it's a short, it's short. A lot gets done in 90 minutes. I think it's like it's one of those things where you really need to pay attention. It's because it's like a slow build towards the reveal that happens, which is like gut punching. Oh yeah. But what I really loved about it is how is how Jorge gets across so much detail without, with, but with very spare. It's kind of like you. Know, it's kind of like an Ezra Pound poem, where you know, where you have like only four words in the line, but somehow it's like the entire universe. And I felt, I felt that. And the thing is, like, I loved how yes, he talked about trauma, but he doesn't, but he's not sentimental about it, and he doesn't over dramatizes it. It's like a thing that happened, and here are the repercussions, which I really appreciate because I think there's so there's such an inclination for dramatists to, like, really play it up or to really create, like, the TV version of it rather than, like, the real-life version of it. And what I really loved is how... How the play is also about, like, why we love art so much or, like... Or why we become, like... Or why we get into fandoms of different pop culture properties because, like, art is a way to escape. And if you put yourself somewhere else... Then you don't have to deal with like all the shit that's going on in your life, and I think that this plays a really a really beautiful representation of uh, just like how art can be escape and how art can not heal but at least give or at least give you some source of joy if you can't find it outside and I was wondering I was wondering for you like what do you like how how much do you because I've read like interviews with Jorge and and he talked a lot about like how the Puerto Rican identity is also like a big factor in the play, but I don't really know how much it really like factored into why these characters behave the way that they did.
1: Mm, I mean, well, Jorge Ignacio Gortigas is uh, Cuban American, so, but uh, it's interesting that you ask that because what I really admire also about the show was the way in which he, you know, the the, the theater at Walker Space, right? It's not a huge theater where you mm-hmm. have like, a lot of room for all this set changes and all that, you know, like fancy yeah. stuff that we see on Broadway. But it's so interesting that you're touching on that because through very tiny elements, he constructs like a completely different world. Like there's not much that changes from the first act, which is just Alvaro with the television set. And then the second act, where we have like a living room, like a very empty living room with mm-hmm. a, a couch. And like a little table in the back that we actually never get to see.
0: Yeah, and a TV. Yeah. Which is a plot device.
1: But but you know, but if you're looking close enough, there's a scene, for instance, where the neighbor is making coffee and she's making coffee and milk and she's using a little thing that I'm probably sure you've never seen before that looks like an inverted like hood. Mm-hmm. Remember? Like a little song? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen those before? No. Okay, so I immediately saw that, and that's called a colador, and we use it to make drip coffee, right? I immediately saw that, and even though if everything else was very, like, nondescript, very, like, America, you know, living room kind of situation, that little thing just gave it a spin for me. Like, suddenly, Mm. I was not in America anymore. I was in Puerto Rico
0: so it's like texture, yeah. I okay, when, so but it's not so it's not like an over identity play about being Puerto Rican because I don't really think I got that.
1: Oh no, not at if all. It was there. So with all these little touches, he's infusing the play with all this Latinidad, which is so exciting because I don't get to see that at all on stage. Yeah, and what he's pointing out, I felt even though this play was uh, written after maria for example like hurricane maria devastated mm-hmm. puerto rico right but what he in a way i guess unintentionally he's drawing so many parallels and just saying you know like hey white americans you know like if it's just this like little colador that lets you know you're in puerto rico it means we're not that different man like yeah why are yeah. you yeah why are you fucking racist <laughs> and
0: well and and we're also sit they're also citizens so. yeah yeah.
1: and also the way in which you know like i i mean probably it was the same for you growing up and the same that that we see for alvaro it was definitely certainly the same for me growing up where all we got were like shows about white americans right mm-hmm. like things like the oh X-Files. yeah 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 and i love that he shows how that inspired alvaro to become an artist in his own making And in a a very same way that Jorge Ignacio Cortinas is, like, bending and subverting the form of, like, the, you know, living room drama. Because this is basically a living room drama. Oh, yeah.
0: Definitely. But with X-Files. Yeah. With aliens.
1: With aliens, yeah. Yeah. In the very same way that Alvaro, you know, subverts the X-Files and turns the episode into a very personal piece of storytelling, Cortinas is doing the same with the living room drama.
0: And and while you're talking, like, it it made me realize because, like, it opens with an X-Files. They talk about an X-Files episode that was set in Puerto Rico and how it wasn't actually Puerto Rico. It was just some producer's backlot in California. (laughs) And so it's kind of like a genius move to then be like, you think this is Puerto Rico, but this is actually Puerto Rico. Yes. and And how I remember I remember like growing up, and whenever I saw like an Asian face on screen, even if it was a tiny Asian face, I'd be like, "Who is this person? What was her life like? Like I want to learn more about her and so I feel like for young Avaro to see a Puerto Rican person on screen, even if they weren't Puerto Rican, they were actually Mexican, was enough to like build a life on because like that's what happens when you when you're a person of color watching American entertainment like you just take whatever you, whatever you can get mm hmm uh, if, if you're, gonna, I feel like if you're gonna see recent alien abductions, like maybe have a shot beforehand because it's gonna, it's gonna, it's a bummer. it's beautifully done. But it's a bummer.
1: It's sad. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway, it's produced by Play Company at Soho Rep, and it's playing until it's playing until March twenty fourth, and it's been produced before around the country. So it'll probably be produced again. So if it gets, it comes to your hometown, it's really worth checking out. Uh, tickets are fifteen to forty five dollars. All right. Uh, for our interview today, we talked to Ali Ewald. Jose, tell us more about her. Ali's fabulous. She was the very
1: first Asian American to play Christine Daae in Phantom of the Opera, mm. and she's also done stuff like Les Mis. And the reason why we had her on the show because other than you know like all the fabulous stuff that she brings, is that she's doing a show at Feinstein's Fifty Four Below called Fifty Four Sings Andrew Lloyd Webber, where she And this impressive cast are going to be doing all these numbers from Sir Andrew's repertory. So we talked to her about that and about Phantom and about Chandeliers and a bunch of other stuff. So enjoy the interview. Ali, well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so excited about this show you're going to be a part of at Feinstein's 54 Below. It's Mm -hmm. 54 Sings Andrew Lloyd Webber.
0: Yes.
1: And... So many songs, like are you gonna be able to explore any of his work that you couldn't obviously in uh, Phantom?
2: Yeah, I'm actually singing, um, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but I'm going to be singing Love Changes Everything, oh. um, which I've never sung properly before in a concert. It's from Aspects of Love. Most people mm-hmm. don't know that show at all. I think a lot of people have heard um, that song. So I thought, you know, why not do something different since everybody's probably sick of hearing me sing bantam <laughs> at this point to branch <laughs> off and let somebody else get to carry that torch and you know <laughs> sing those beautiful melodies.
1: Like one of the beautiful things about Andrew Lloyd Webber's work, I think, is that you know, like, if you're uh, if you're a female actor, there's like a, a kind of like a road you can follow. Like, you can play Christine, then you can play Grizzabella. Uh-huh. and at some point. You're gonna be like Norma Desmond.
2: Yes, exactly. There's there's a great there's a great progression that's possible. One of our um, when I was doing Phantom on Broadway, our current Madame Jerry, who I got to work with as well, Marie Johnson, was one of the first Christines in Australia, and then you know <laughs> she got she had kids. She took her career in different directions, and then she got to come back to the show as a completely different part, you know, um, in, in a more mature mature and wiser role, um, which I think she really appreciated, especially having the experience of getting to be
0: Christine and, and see the show from a different angle. Mm. I mean, one of the things I've always heard from singers about singing in the Angela Weber score is, like, it's so punishing for <laughs> female <embarrassing>. singers, <laughs> or, he, or he hates female <laughs> singers, basically, and Kyle <laughs> LeCom basically said, Peter ruined my voice for a little while.
2: <laughs> it's, um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge and a half. I mean, uh, Christine actually surprised me in how low it was. I didn't realize, obviously, you know, everyone knows she's a soprano, and she has all these high notes and whatnot, but the mm-hmm. rate, the span of her vocal mm-hmm. um, part is actually really demanding, and actually, i, I I feel like I expanded um, my lower register, which was kind of exciting. It was a good, it was a good challenge that way. Um, I was very fortunate that I only had to do it six times a week. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a lovely gift that Sarah Brightman gave um, both in having Phantom created in the first place, but also in um, having all Christine's only having to do six of the eight shows and having an alternate who did the other two. Um, But I had to be really diligent about my time, both on stage. And off, we were talking about how um, you know i I personally think that drinking alcohol doesn 't help me sing in the long term, and so I find it. Um, comforting to myself to abstain when I'm playing really difficult parts. So I did that with Christine to try and just do as much as I could to get as much moisture in my body at all times, steaming and whatnot and all the different vitamins and regimens and psychological tricks so that I felt like I was capable of singing such a difficult score.
1: But many of Andrew's musicals are the entry point for so many people, mm-hmm. you know, for who fall in love with Broadway either through, Uh, cats or a a lot of people find with Broadway through cats and phantom Mm -hmm. and what was it
0: oh I fell in love with Broadway through
1: phantom
0: (laughs) probably very problematic but it's fine (laughs) (laughs) so what was
1: it like for you to know to for lack of you know better words to live like the dream and to go from being you know like being impressed by the work and then to Doing it.
2: Yes, and I had exactly that journey. I remember I saw cats from my fifth grade graduation. I went to watch it with some of my mm-hmm. friends. I have some very dorky pictures of us, us watching cats. And I watched Phantom for the first time when I was 10. Mm-hmm. I remember exactly where I sat. We were in one of the boxes, which are, are not actually my favorite seats in the theater, FYI, if any of you are going to go see Phantom. Um, but my dad, because I think we were in we were in some sort of box that had the number five in it, and my dad had covered up the other part of it and kept saying the whole time, like, we're in box five, the Phantom's going to come in. So I remember exactly where we were. Um, but I think what was so great about then getting to play that part, because of course, when I was 10, I saw Christine on the stage and was like, ah, mm-hmm, I want to do that, that would be amazing. Um, so then many... Years later, for that dream to come true was amazing um, and very satisfying. But also, you know, there was a lot of—I felt a lot of pressure um, put upon myself because this had been my dream for so many years to actually fulfill it in, you know, the appropriate way. Um, but I also found it really inspiring to know that that was my journey into musical theater and that so many of our audience members, this would be the very first musical they ever saw, um, the very first Broadway show they ever saw. We have so many um, foreign people that come in, tourists that come in to see the show, um, and they come to see Phantom because they hear that that's what Broadway is. And so I think as a performer in Phantom, it's a great responsibility to do a great job of storytelling and performing musical theater so then ultimately, I hope, they will go see lots of other shows and maybe smaller shows or off Broadway shows, or shows that have just been written that nobody's heard of before because they fell in love with what we were doing and how we were telling stories through song and musical theater. It's so
1: uncanny because, like, the chandelier thing never gets old.
2: <laughs> I know, and, right? Yeah,
1: and if it is it as fun, as much fun to be doing the show?
2: The chandelier moment was actually really, it was it was always thrilling for me because part of the nature of Christine, because of the time period in which she lives and the way the show was written is that she unfortunately often is very passive. Um, and I think a lot of my challenge was finding the ways that she wasn't. But in the moment with the chandelier, the way that it's directed, she is just standing still and kind of watching the thing happen and then it's Raoul who comes in and saves her. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes it kind of exciting because then there's somebody exactly in the path of the chandelier. But it also um, makes it really interesting, particularly when you you're working with multiple men playing RAL and understudies, etc., to have that kind of trust exercise to always believe that the whoever <laughs> you're playing opposite that day is going to save you, <laughs> and they always did. They were always wonderful. There was never there was never a doubt, but just kind of that guys. Guys, you're coming. You're coming, right? Because it's getting kind of fast. <laughs> I hope you haven't been drinking. Yeah, exactly. No, they were all they were all professionals. They were there on time. One of my favorite stories that I heard, because of course part of the joy of being part of a long-running show that's been around for 30 years and has had life on tour, etc., is that all the blooper moments get passed down um, in stories over the years. And so you get to hear about all these different things. And um, one of our cast members, who I will not name, um, apparently was once playing Raoul on tour. And on tour, oftentimes, the, um, the stages are different lengths or mm-hmm. widths or whatever, depths. And... Um, and they were in some city where it happened to be very long. And Raoul has to run all the way from stage right to center to grab Christine. And this Raoul realized too late that he wasn't going to make it in time. And his cover, which I think is brilliant, was that he shouted, Christine, save yourself! <laughs> <laughs> so that she knew to run out of the path of the chandelier.
0: Which I think it's kinda of genius. Because right. everybody was saved. nobody got hit by anything. Which always well. you know. Right. And you know what though? The show is basically her saving everybody. It's true. It's
2: true. She saves Ralph many, many times. Yes. And herself. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody who could've been harmed by the phantom, you know, in the in the future as well. So she, she is she is her own heroine in so many in so many ways. So it worked it worked for that moment too, I'm sure.
0: You have a degree in psychology from Yale, which I find so fascinating. <laughs> but I feel like that's like the perfect way to be, to like segue into being an actor because isn't acting mostly like getting into head spaces of different kinds of people? Yes,
2: I think that's exactly right. Honestly, my. <laughs> My my degree from Yale sounds a lot fancier than it is. It basically was. I went to Yale, no
0: big deal, right? Yeah.
2: But but it was. I was trying to find a, a place that I could go where I could study academics because I knew I was always passionate about uh, about my studies, and somehow I knew at a young age that um, being a performer professionally was very difficult.
0: Which, you know,
2: is obvious to all of us now. But, you know, as a kid, you think, oh, it's amazing, dream world, you get to wear pretty clothes and bear with people. Um, And so I thought it would be a good idea to have a background in something else. And so Mm -hmm. Yale, in a lot of ways, was kind of my denial phase, where I thought, maybe I'll find something else that I can study that I'll be similarly passionate about, and take voice lessons all the time, and also perform in all sorts of, like, weird student productions that happen all the time at Yale, which was very cool. Um, Mm -hmm. And psychology happened to be the major where I said, you know, like... I'm interested in all of these classes, which again, like you were saying, I think is because the root of it was, I'm curious about why people are doing the things that they're doing. And so that was the major where I could fulfill all the coursework and still have a lot of extra time to go do um, my extracurricular performing of, you know, whatever weird play or strange opera with Awkward props and things mm-hmm. that I was doing on the side. I mean, do co-stars ever come up to you and be like, "Hey, I have a problem." <laughs> I mean, if they were to, sadly, you know, a liberal arts degree in psychology really doesn't have a lot of application to the real world. I'm not a licensed professional in, in any way, um, but I do. I do find you know my coworkers to be very interesting. I mean, and people in general too, and um, and trying to understand, you know, I think what's What's great about being an actor is that you learn to have empathy for all sorts of different kinds of people, both real-life people and characters. And, um, and I think psychology is a great segue into, into that, into understanding all the factors why people behave the way they do.
1: Uh, as an actor, you're asked mostly to communicate and express yourself through song and music. However, I thought your work in Anna Green Gables, which is a dance piece, was exquisite.
2: Thank you. And
1: and I'm really curious, what did you learn about yourself as as an artist by getting to you know, exercise different muscles. Oh, thank you so much. Literal muscles.
2: It was, um, Anne was one of those pieces that was so exciting and so intimidating because I'm so used to being able to lean on my tricks of, you know, now I can sing a high note and I know everybody loves those. But without having any of that to rely upon or even um, the usual characters that I would play, nobody in Anne was actually appropriate for me type-wise. You know, it was between an 11-year-old girl and like 50 and 60 year old men and women and character folks and like kind of gross evil people. And, um, and so none, none of them, uh, let me kind of lean back and, and use the, the usual bag of tricks that I have. Um, and so even just the audacity I felt of thinking that people would want to sit there and listen to me speak for, you know, 75 minutes, um, took a lot of, um, kind of psyching myself into it on my end and courage to, to just, do it and trust that I do actually have the skills to tell stories that way without having to rely upon, you know, the things that I'm used to relying upon. Um, and so, um, and it, and what really was difficult about Aaron for me, too, was the concentration of it. Because normally, um, I if I'm doing Phantom of the Opera, I have people to look at. Mm-hmm. And they I say something, they say something, I say something, they say something, and I get to play off of whatever emotions they're giving me, the words they're giving me, Um and with Anna Creek Gables, because I was the only one speaking the entire time, I had these beautiful dancers with me, but I didn't get to. They they couldn't prompt me if I <laughs> lost my mind, <laughs> or they wouldn't even say anything to me. They were just there to sort of help me express emotion. Um, and so, just to kind of keep on myself and concentrate on what what was coming next and who I was going to be and the story that I was telling was was really hard. I had to, I, I did a lot of meditating during that time. Um, and even just, you know, I, I find that, that over the years with phones and screens and whatnot, my attention span has dwindled. Um, and so it was a really good exercise for me and just being very, very present and concentrating and, you know, throughout, throughout the course of the play. And what are you working on now besides a particular concert? So I just finished um, this Into the Woods out on Long Island, which was fun. I got to do my first Cinderella um, in, um, in professional performance. And um, my next... Well, I've got a bunch of little concerts coming up and then I'm going to Utah in May to do a new show called Gold Mountain that my amazing friend Jason Ma wrote. Um, mm-hmm. We did a stage reading of it here uh, in 2017, I think. Um, but it's about... Um, the Chinese workers who came in to build the Central Pacific Railroad. Yes, yeah. And what's exciting about doing it in Utah is that they celebrate sort of the completion of the railroad Every year, and this year is the 150th anniversary, and it's the first time they're inviting because there's a big Chinese American community in Utah that they're inviting the Chinese American community to also partake in it, and so they're bringing us out there to perform this musical Gold Mountain in addition to all the other celebrations that are going on to really um, celebrate the work that the the Chinese workers did as well in in creating the railroad. Oh, okay. where is it being put on? Uh, it's going to be in Salt
0: Lake City and in Ogden. We're going to be there for for about a week. Amazing. Yeah. And I I love it because I, I love that people are actually talking about this history now because mm-hmm. there's all these assumptions that we were all taught about, oh what what people built this what built America. Right. Right. And we're all inheriting. It's like, no, we all did.
2: Right. Or the immigrants have only been here for so long when yeah. actually like we've been here for a long time. Yeah. Actually, I mean, we're a pretty integral part of the history of the fabric of, you know, of this country. And so it's exciting that they're that um that those those lives that were lost are being honored in this way. And, you know, it was it was not an easy thing to build that railroad. No, no. <laughs> or to build many of the things. Or leave your families.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Can have wives, I don't think. No, no, yeah. I'm
2: I'm playing in the um, the prostitute that basically sold Whoa. herself. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. Well, it's it's a lot it's a lot of an actress in the musical yeah. theater. It's not the first time. Um, <laughs> but um, but my character's story is that um, her her father and her brothers left China to come to the States uh, to look for the, quote, Gold Mountain, which ended up being not gold, but them building the railroad and sending money back. But they were killed on the way over. Um, and her family didn't have any money for food. And so she sold herself to go over there to support her mother and her um, and her younger siblings. And so I ended up being sort of the sole in this story, the sole um, Chinese prostitute, in the the local brothel who then comes and kind of um, interacts with the workers who kind of shun her at first and then she finds a love interest and um, gets to participate in their their story as well.
0: I hope you have a happy ending because prostitutes don't good things don't happen to prostitutes in musical theater. You know I don't I don't
2: want to spoil it but um, it's a
0: it's a tough it's a tough
2: life. I don't I don't think a lot of the people that worked on that uh, railroad had really yeah. the Also Well so there's pretty
1: women, so at least one sex worker gets it right. <laughs> one, one sex like worker
0: five, gets it
2: right. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. Uh,
1: would you like to invite our viewers to come see you everywhere you want? Yes. I want them to points mm-hmm. Yes, please,
0: please. please. We're
2: going to be uh, singing Andrew Lloyd Webber at Fine Signs 54 Below on March 25th. Two performances, I believe it's yes. 7 and 9.30, 7.30 Look it up. It's on the it's on the fifty four below website. Um, if you happen to be in Utah, come check out Gold Mountain. And you can follow me at um on Instagram at Ali Ewald A-L-I-E-W-O-L-D-T. Also on Twitter and on my webpage. and I'll put all the random stuff that I'm doing coming up up there.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank much for you for having
2: us. me. Really, thank you so much. It's a
0: pleasure. So, Jose, what is your favorite Michael Jackson song?
1: It depends on the day, but usually it's either going to be like Beat It or Don't Stop Till they Get Enough or no, wait, I think mm, that's so tricky. That's, so, that's a trick question. It's so hard. I
0: know. Well, I feel like my favorite is super problematic and I can't listen to it anymore. I can't listen to any of it anymore, but especially this one pretty young thing Ooh. yeah like when was the last time you were you listened to michael jackson <laughs> probably like an
1: evade or some
0: yeah uh, right i haven't f-
1: dance with you is that what it's called no dance I with, you. Rock, with rock you. you rock rock with you rock with, with you, you.
0: Yeah. All na- that's my favorite oh. how have you been feeling about michael jackson lately
1: oh man i don't even know I don't even know. It's just so depressing.
0: Well, the reason for our 11 o'clock number we're talking about Michael Jackson is because recently HBO released a two-part documentary called Leaving Neverland, where two men alleged that Michael Jackson sexually abused them over years, starting from one man, Wade Robson, who's a well-known choreographer. He was abused by Michael Jackson from when he was seven years old to when he was 15, about a really, no, 13, I think, a really long time. And so everyone's been talking about what this means for Michael Jackson's legacy what we do with Michael Jackson's art and their theater connection is because there was supposed to be a Michael Jackson musical that was supposed to run in Chicago this summer and it's been canceled and it will allegedly run next year on Broadway and Lynn Nottage is writing the book and it's supposed to be about Michael Jackson's world tour in 92 9 1992
1: 93 peak problem michael jackson time
0: yeah and so what i wanted to what what we wanted to talk about today was whether a musical is a good place to discuss these issues
1: As someone who thinks a musical is the perfect you know opportunity to do like everything related to art i would say yes a musical should be the place for that. The thing is, have we seen any musicals like it before? You know, if that's the angle that the book writer wanted to take. Mm-hmm. which is Because it's like, in a way, it's just like, you know, the opposite of what you think about when you think of, of a bio musical, right? Because they're all like yes. celebrating the lives of these people who have problems and eventually like overcome them and all of that. But Michael yeah. Jackson did not. I mean, well, I guess he overcame them because he was he, never in trouble for any yeah,
0: of it. Yeah, but he, he, but he also died very young.
1: Yeah. Without any of this, like, touching him, like...
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. uh, there, there were a lot of, like, settlements, right? Out of yeah. court and all of that.
0: Yeah. Millions um, of dollars, yeah.
1: I mean, I'm thinking about, like, the bio-musicals that I love and things, like, beautiful, the Carol King musical and even Summer, the Donna Summer musical and the Share Show. Cher Show. <laughs> They're all, you know, like... Cher and Donna Summer and Carol King are not Michael Jackson. So, I don't know. We haven't seen that musical, but I think theater should be touching on issues like this. Obviously, I don't think his estate is going to want a show about that, right, with his music.
0: Yeah, his estate is co-producing the musical. So, if it happens, it's not going to... Probably touch on it, but yeah, that that's what that's usually why I find bi musicals so distasteful is because, like, I remember watching the Motown musical and it was about like the founder of Motown Records and yes, they produced a lot of great artists, but they also fucked over a lot of people. But you don't really talk about that.
1: Yeah, I wonder it's, what they're doing with the Tina Turner, Turner music- musical in I have London. No idea, because she went through a lot. But also, like you know, it's. Again, it's, it's a show about Tina. It's not a show about... What's her husband's name? I forgot. Ike? Yes. It's not a show about him. So, I mean, are you asking if musicals should... Not celebrate, because it wouldn't be a celebration. But are you asking if musicals should depict monsters?
0: Yeah. Or is, is it even possible to depict monsters via a musical theater form like the Jukebox musical? Because if we're talking about like a Michael Jackson jukebox musical featuring his music, then in like listening to it in a theater that you paid a lot of money for, are you then not kind of complicit in this culture of silence that we all played into and in or so and ensured that he would have fresh victims?
1: Yeah, well, that sounds predatory, so... <laughs> which I guess it was, but. I don't know, because then we would go into like a whole conversation about like whether we should, you know, like put our dollars where our morals are. And I mean, it's hard. Like if, if Rock With You or Billie Jean just started playing right now, would you be able not to like tap your feet along to them or like shake and move to them?
0: Yeah. Then that, that's a genius of it. Like th- I think that's a genius of celebrity is you, it makes you, f- even now, there are people who still believe that he didn't do any of those things. Even if you think people are lying, like there is just not, there's just certain behavioral things that are not normal to regular human beings. Like grown men should not be sleeping in the same beds with young children. That is problematic. And yet somehow, because he was famous and because he wrote such great songs, he, he all of the shady stuff is forgiven or you just turn a blind eye to it. And so I think if we could somehow make a musical about the toxicity of a celebrity and celebrity culture, that might be compelling. And if it made made us maybe, like, rethink these songs in a different way or hear them, but feel complicated about them instead of just thinking, oh, this is a great song. I love this song. I personally
1: don't subscribe to the idea that we should not you know engage with their art anymore maybe i would say don't buy his records and don't buy tickets to his musical <laughs> but if you're listening to it you know you can't you know you can't deny that he was a genius
0: yeah and and, and i don't think like what he did denies I don't think what well, he did takes away from the fact that he created great art, I think. But my issue is, like, that art also made it possible for him to abuse people. Like, these women let him, let their sons, the moms of these boys let their sons sleep in Michael Jackson's bed because he was Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's just, like, grows on so many levels. And, and so, I, I don't think, like, you can separate the art from the artist completely, but I think, like, Knowing about the artist can help contextualize the art or can help you understand the art or give you more dimensions around it. Because I think, I think we, I think we as a culture should at the very least be able to not, not, not just like not give money, but like grapple with these moral issues instead of pretending they don't exist. Because at least then we're all in a, in the uncomfortable space together, and we're not just we're not just like putting victims in the space by themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, but I just, I just, I, I don't know. I, I would not stop consuming the art of someone who made good art mm-hmm. because there were horrible people. Because I've always wondered this. Uh, I think you know one of the curses, uh, obviously one of the blessings, but also one of the curses of living in the age that we live in is that we know too much we know about too much everyone mm-hmm. and i 've often wondered uh when people you know like start saying like you 're like sick for listening to Michael Jackson or you 're like a terrible person for Listening to Ivanka Trump. No, I'm kidding. Ivanka, yeah, Ivanka. I won't defend <laughs> Ivanka. But when people say stuff like that, when you're like, you're a bad person, if you listen or if you read or if you watch like a Woody Allen movie, for instance. And I've often wondered, you know... Roman it,
0: Polanski? What? Can you watch a Roman, Roman Polanski movie? Yeah. Or, you All know, right. people like okay. Polanski
1: and Woody Allen and so many yeah. people, you know, like now after the, the Me Too movement, like people just started saying that anything that Harvey Weinstein had produced should not be watched, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing. And I often wonder, like, sometimes even when I'm going through the Met and I'm looking at all this, like, ancient art, and I wonder, you know, what if we found out someday that Leonardo da Vinci was, like, a puppy murderer or that he was a serial killer or that he was, you know, a serial rapist – or that he was racist. You know, if, if we They're found... They're all racist. Well, yeah, that's a good point. But <laughs> if, if we found out more about the artists that we respect and whose works inspire us and we love, I often wonder that. Like, if if we knew everything there is to know about every artist out there, would we be able to consume any art?
0: Like, at all? Without feeling complicated about it? Yeah. You mean? because. It, I mean dude Horrible. It, I mean do you think like complication's are a bad thing though?
1: Oh no, not at all. But I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to figure out is the opposite of that, which is where people just flat out stop you know, uh where they reject and they like decide to like eliminate mm-hmm. you know delete all their Michael Jackson music from their phones, for instance. Mm-hmm. Or burn their records. Or remember just like Something similar was in a, in a, obviously like in a different way was back in 2003, I think, when the Dixie Chicks were against the Iraq war.
0: Yeah. And all the
1: conservatives started like burning their albums and like sending them death threats. And like, mm-hmm. remember, they're like bulldozing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Over
1: their albums. And we're seeing the opposite of that. Like, we're seeing like an artist take a stand for the good, right? Mm-hmm. But people reacted to them the same way that a lot of people react. To when they find something terrible about an artist, right? Yeah. So I don't know. It's really complicated.
0: But would you see that the Michael Jackson musical? Well, I don't know. I mean it hasn't
1: even happened. I honestly don't know if it's gonna happen given all of this. Stuff.
0: Right. But they say it's gonna go still gonna go to Broadway.
1: I mean, I don't know. Like I don't I I, I definitely would be ready for a musical that explored this. Yeah. But if it's his estate they probably are going to want to, like, yeah, they're going to have, like, candy-coated and sugar-coated and...
0: Yeah, he's, like, the greatest person who died too young. So I wonder if also, like, some sort of, like,
1: uh, racial inequality is going to come into play with that. Are people going to be harder on Michael Jackson because they always expect, you know, black men to be better than white men, and, like, they're not forgiven as easily as white men.
0: I don't know, though, but I I feel like but Michael Jackson, especially towards the end of his life, like he wanted to be seen as white. Oh yeah, so, and I think like the white community really embraced him in a way that they didn't embrace other black artists. Like you know, I, I like to compare him to Prince. Like they're both contemporaries, and they're and they're both very you know, they were they were showmen. They made such great music, but Prince isn't Prince was black, and Prince wasn't embraced by white people as much as Michael Jackson.
1: Not as much, no, definitely not as much. But you know, he wasn't shunned
0: he wasn't shunned either but you know i don't think if i don't think moms would have allowed their young kids to sleep in prince's bed
1: oh probably not because he was also yeah i mean michael jackson was always like protecting this like very wholesome image like he started mm-hmm. out as a kid and prince was the prince was like a sex god
0: yes he wasn't a
1: pedophile but he was a sex god yes so like It it, again, it goes back to like the whole like puritanical like aspects of American society where they had, Mm -hmm. they'd rather pretend that people have no genitals. Yeah. And then send their kids to bed with
0: Catholic priests. Yeah. Or Michael Jackson. Oh man, this is a depressing episode. (laughs) So depressing. (laughs) I don't know. How do you all feel about the Michael Jackson musical and how can, how can musical theater help, you know, theatricalize these really these really important but complicated and uncomfortable issues let us know what you think uh otherwise thank you all for listening sorry this was depressing next time we'll talk about you know share who's not problematic no
1: she's not oh (laughs) oh my god make the michael jackson musical about the
0: kids yes like fun home
1: yes Oh, God, so it's going to be so depressing.
0: It would be so depressing, but you know what, though? It, it would be depressing, and, they, and then you hear some music, and then they, and then you will be like, oh, that sounds so nice, but oh, wait. But at least you'll still get a little bit of joy. Yeah. For like the two seconds you hear a couple, the first bars of Thriller.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Make it about the boys. We should listen to their stories. Mm-hmm. And give all the profit to the families. Yeah, and the people or at ate. least
0: rain. Or give the profits to rain or any or one in six like any any victims organizations anyway thank you all for listening you can subscribe to us on itunes or anywhere you get podcasts uh we have the video of the Ali Ewalt interview on youtube and anything you want to say to the people i don't know i'm not I'm depressed also
1: Go do something happy.
0: Go do something happy. It's almost spring. Go. It's almost time for theater outside. So, very excited. Anyway, that's our show. And, and remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend, especially when you're sad. Bye. <laughs> Bye.